Welcome to Zealots of the Gate, a podcast of Comment Magazine. I'm Matthew Kamink. I'm Shadi Hamid. Together we research politics, religion, and the future of democracy at Fuller Seminary's Mao Institute of Faith and Public Life. We are writing a book together. This podcast represents an informal space where we can talk about how to live with deep difference. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, everyone. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, please feel free to leave us a review. Uh, we love to see five-star reviews if you love us. But even if you don't, please feel free to share your feedback. You can join the conversation and ask us questions by using the hashtag ZealotsPod on Twitter. We do check that regularly. Or feel free to email us at zealots at comment.org. We would love to hear from you. For those of you who are new to the podcast, Matt Kamink and I are good friends, but perhaps we shouldn't be. We are quite different in our own ways. Uh, Matt's Christian. I'm Muslim. He's a theologian. I'm a political scientist. Um, So we come at things with um, distinctive perspectives, and we'll share some of those with you today, including with our special guest. Um, Over to you, Matt. Yeah, so today we have the Right Reverend Dr. Graham Tomlin uh, as our guest, and a very exciting uh, topic to tackle. Bishop Graham is, uh, as I said, a bishop within the Church of England. He is also the director of the Center for Cultural Witness and runs a, a really beautiful um, online journal called Seen and Unseen. You can you can look them up at seenandunseen.com. We'll include the, the link to that. Um, Bishop Graham is also a theologian, has written several books on faith, theology, and culture. Today, we're going to be talking about the coronation of King Charles. Um, Bishop Graham is involved in this coronation, which is going to be happening on May 6th. Is that correct? That's the right day, yep. Yeah, May 6th. So the, the coronation of King Charles is this robust global event, which many of us will be watching on television here from uh, North America. and. Um, the event itself has a lot of theological, political, uh, and cultural weight to it. And so we wanted uh, a bit of a, a liturgical guide to this uh, service and what it means. And And Bishop Graham, as we were talking before, this is a, a conversation about theology, politics, and pluralism that we're having here at Zealots of the Gate. And we thought it would be really wonderful to chat with you about all of that. So thank you so much for being on the show. And I I wonder if you might start us off with just giving us sort of uh, an overview of the basic um, goals of this coronation service or um, just an overview of the theological meaning behind it. And then we can kind of dig into pieces um, as we go. Yeah, well, thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Shadi, for your welcome. It's great to be with you on the podcast today. Um, yeah, it's a kind of big event for us here in the UK. Um, we haven't had one for 70 years, which is quite a long time as coronations go. That's about the longest gap we've had, actually. For, so for most of us, I mean, in my lifetime, I've never known another monarch than Queen Elizabeth II, true for most people. Um, and we're still quite unique in that sense. I, mean, I think the UK is is the only European country that actually still has coronations. Um, I mean, there are other countries like Belgium, Luxembourg, Netherlands, they've never had them. Uh, Spain stopped having them in the 15th century. Um Norway abolished it in 1908. You know, we're quite unique in that sense. And so um, so this is quite an unusual event for us. You know, we haven't had one for 70 years. Not many other countries have coronations like like this. 
Um, and so that's a, a bit of the, the the background to it. I mean, the the, the actual um, the origins of the service actually go back a very long way. I mean, if you go back to say 973 AD, you know, over a thousand years ago, you get the the um, the coronation of King Edgar, who was a Saxon king, by uh, St Dunstan, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time. And, and basically, the structure of the service then is pretty much exactly what it is today. So you get these different elements to it. You start off with the the recognition by the current the congregation who represent the people. Um, so they recognise the new king as he comes in. You then get uh, the administration of oaths, where the king um, or the monarch uh, promises to uphold the rule of law, the rule of the laws of God, the, the Protestant religion, and the Church of England. Um, there's then a a very kind of very private, mysterious element of the service. In fact, the most intimate part of it, which is the anointing with oil, and it's um, it's so so sacred in some ways. It's the one bit that won't be filmed. It wasn't filmed last time seventy years ago. Not even the television cameras get near it. There's a kind of screen drawn around it because it's a very intimate moment where the the Archbishop of Canterbury anoints the king's head and mouth and and breast and hands and so on. You then get the, the crowning. So there's the uh, investiture with the royal regalia, the crown, the, the orb, the scepter, and so on. There's then the enthronement, where he is led to the um, the throne itself. Uh, and then there's the homage, where the people kind of give their uh, pledge their allegiance to the to the um, the king. And then he goes into a into a celebration of holy communion. Um, so actually, the first thing that a new king does is to um, not preside over because the archbishop is the president, but you know to introduce, if you like, a um, the central Christian service and act of worship, which is the Eucharist, the Holy Communion. So that's basically the structure of it. And that's kind of how it works. Again, we can dig more into the detail of it, but that's basically the, the structure, which you know, has been there pretty much for a thousand years, even though every time it happens, it changes a little bit. And so it's not exactly the same service as it was a thousand years ago, but it, every time it shifts to, to reflect the nature of the society in which it takes place. One concern from those on the outside, and and this is sort of a growing concern about power, distrust of power, that you know the um, the ways in which power is misused, that this might be a worship service in which um, the king is is glorified as almost a deity, um, and 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 is given sort of a godlike power. But when you and I were chatting before, it was a couple of weeks ago, talking about this. You said there's actually there's there's sort of a humbling element within this service of the king, uh, of acknowledging that the king is not God. Hmm. Can you talk through maybe some elements of the service that might be a little bit humbling or meant to be at least humbling for the monarchy um, and, and how that might help us think about power within the Christian imagination? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the um, so, for example, there's one element of the service where the monarch is given the orb. And this is a um, it's a it's a perfectly spherical uh, orb that was made back in the 17th century for Charles II. But he's given this orb, and the, the, the orb represents the globe. It, it represents the the earth, the you know the um, earthly power, if you like. But set over the globe is a cross. And actually, when the Archbishop gives the the King the orb, he says the words, "Receive this orb, set under the cross, and remember that the whole world is subject to the power and empire of Christ our Redeemer." So in other words, he's told at that moment, you do not have ultimate power. Your power is circumscribed. You are accountable to some order that is above yourself. And therefore, there is a kind of prescribing, a kind of limiting of the power of the monarch 
by that very act, by giving this reminder that, that all earthly power is delegated from an authority above that authority, that, that's that, that earthly authority itself. So in other words, it's a way of saying that, you know, you as a king, you are accountable. You will one day give account for the way you use your power. Um, and it's a kind of hedge against dictatorship. We, we all know how sort of dictators and despots who feel they have the power of life and death over their people. It's a kind of way of saying, you know, you, you don't have that. You don't have the power of life and death over your people. I think the other thing it says, of course, is that that symbol that is over the, the, uh, the orb is a cross. In other words, the symbol of self-sacrificial love, which is the, the, the love that we see in, in the, 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 uh, the death of Christ on the cross. And so in other words, the, the other message I think that, that gives is not only you are accountable to a higher power, all authority is God's, not yours, um, but it's you are to root, to exercise your rule in a self-sacrificial way. This is not about power for yourself. This is not about ruling um, and, uh, and kind of imposing your will upon everybody else. This is about a kind of spirit of self-sacrifice in the way you go about your rule. And that's, uh, that's you know, it, it, it's, it's exemplified in the fact that, I mean, King Charles, when Charles, well, Prince Charles, as he has been so far, he's, I think, 73 now. I mean, most people at 73 are putting their feet up and going to play golf and and retiring. And he's now suddenly taking on the most sort of significant um, uh, kind of responsibility, which he will never give up. You can't retire as the king. And well, I guess you can, you can abdicate, but that's very unusual normally. And certainly the queen felt it was her right, her responsibility to, to res remain in that role until her dying day. And I imagine he will feel the same. So there's that sense that, you know, that this is, there is an element of self-sacrifice in this and he's called to exercise rule in a self-sacrificial way. Nice. If I could jump in here as someone who is very unfamiliar with some of this context, I should say I, I did live in in Britain for two years, so I should know Ooh. more than what I actually know, so please forgive uh, the ignorance here. But when we talk about the theological meaning and context attached to the coronation, since I see Britain as an extremely secular and secularized country, and we can talk a little bit more later about how England is a Christian minority country, um, and that is really remarkable. It is really worth emphasizing that because I think for Americans, it will be hard to process how that could possibly be the case. And it's not because of um, immigration or the decline of the white population. It's because um, a lot of British people have moved away from religion and no longer identify with the Church of England. So when I when I think about that context, I wonder, are the things you've said about um, this responsibility towards God and um, the fact that ultimate power belongs to Christ and upholding the laws of God, is that pro forma rhetoric? Should we see that as a kind of performance, a vestige of a previous era? Like, What meaning does that actually have in practice today, considering that most British people are not, in fact— religious or even Christian, and they might even be listening to this conversation now and thinking, this is absurd. This is just so contradictory to the way the UK actually is today. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. And I think, I mean, just a number of comments on that. I mean, the, the secular nature of Britain, I think, I think he sometimes overplayed it a little bit. I mean, our recent um, uh, 
census said, I think it was 46% of the population still say they're Christian, which obviously is a lot down from what it used to be. Um, but it's still the largest sort of single kind of um, religious body within the nation. Um, you know, we do have significant and highly valued um, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist populations, but they're relatively small compared to that number of 46%. And obviously there's a, a large number that the rise of nuns, you know, people who, who say they're of no religion is, is increasing, but even still that's a smaller number than the 46%. And when you break that down, there's been some research recently that's broken down the, the nuns, as it were, the, the those who tick the no religion box. And that's not, it's not, they're not all by any means atheist. Many of them are people who have a kind of belief in God. They have a belief in spirituality. They are kind of, oh, some of them are open, some of them are tolerant um, towards faith. They just don't feel any any kind of allegiance to any particular religion. Um, so I think what we're seeing there is the decline of religious observance, but not necessarily the decline of faith, um, which often is still there. So I think that's the first thing I'd, I'd say about it. Um, the second thing I'd say is that, you know, do, does this, um, have any kind of meaning for um, you know for for a sort of secular audience, and I guess I, I think what I'd, I'd say about it is that that at the heart of this service is a particular and I think quite quite coherent understanding of power and authority and how it works, because what you have within it and it reflects on comments I've made already, I guess is is the idea of rule as essentially a call to service, and um, which I think is a quite distinctively. Christian idea that, you know, or Jewish Christian idea, you find it within the Old Testament, you find it within the New Testament, this idea that that rule is not about power. You know, the Roman emperors, uh, you know, in the world into which Christianity was born, they didn't see themselves as the servants of their people. Um, they saw the people were there to serve them. And uh, there was quite a sort of, you know, radical idea that actually rule is about service, not about domination or power. So it's a call to service. Um, it's a call to self-sacrifice. Uh, it's a call to exercise justice with mercy. Again, there's another key moment in the service where um, the monarch is given the uh, the the, um, the rod and the scepter, and they are sort of signs of earthly power. But at that moment, it's quite interesting that what the um, the words that uh, that the archbishop uses is says he received the rod of equity and mercy. Be so merciful that you be not too remiss. So execute justice that you forget not mercy. Punish the wicked, protect and cherish the just, and lead your people in the way where they should go. So, right at the heart of the service, there is this this insistence that justice has to be exercised with mercy. Mercy has to be tempered tempered with justice. Um, you get the sense of you know accountability to a higher power that you know the earthly power is limited. Uh, you also get um, in the anointing, which is a, a kind of symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's a symbol of that to, to saying to the king, look, you, you can't do this on your own. Your own wisdom is not enough to rule. You need divine wisdom. You need help beyond your own self. Now, I think, you know, you put those together. You have an idea of power, which is a call to service, which is about self-sacrifice, which is about justice and mercy. It's about accountability to something beyond yourself. It's about humility and realizing that you need help. And I think that's a I, I find you know, even even if I wasn't a Christian, I think I would find that quite an attractive understanding of, of 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 power, because I can think of all kinds of examples of politicians or rulers who have not exercised those things. And I'm saying if you know, if we if we remove that from our kind of constitutional life, what what are we going to replace it with? Uh, are there better sort of visions of political authority on 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 offer? And it's one that doesn't if you like impose Christianity upon 
the people or even on the monarch. It says this is a Christian understanding of the way in which power works. You don't even have to be a Christian to exercise this. Now, King Charles happens to be a Christian. Um, there have been others in the past who monarchs who didn't haven't had a particularly strong Christian faith. But the calling to rule is still the same. Um, and so I, 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 that's why I think, you know, I think it makes sense to have this this sort of structure as a coherent um, understanding of rule and authority, which actually applies whether or not you're a Christian, whether you're a person of faith or, or, or not of faith. Yeah, that's helpful. And and maybe just a follow-up question, not to get too much in the theological weeds, but I'm curious about the link, the link between the monarch and God, if we think about it either in directly or indirectly. And I was reading um, a piece about the coronation and the his and the kind of the religious implications of the monarchy by uh, Martin Percy, a former Dean of Christ church. And we'll include a link to that piece in the show notes um, in prospect magazine. But he's talking here about um, the coronation and the anointing in perhaps an ideal sense. But he says this quote unquote, like a priest or bishop, this monarch is chosen and anointed by God and has been endowed with significant spiritual, sacred, sacramental power. That's one quote. And he goes on to say, the monarch therefore embodies both godly and human power. And in the rest of the piece, he kind of um, talks a bit about divine inspiration. And I'm, I'm curious if we're talking about King Charles today and not the historical monarch, to what extent is King Charles divinely inspired or anointed by God in either the theoretical or practical sense? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good point. And certainly within the, in that, in that key moment of the anointing, um, when he is anointed with oil, he is given um, special garments. It's a kind of echo of the ordination of priests and bishops within the church. And so there's an element of that he is set apart for a particular role. It's a kind of way of saying that, that actually this is not just an ordinary job. Um, there's something quite sacred and, 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 and special about rule. And if you are taking on the responsibility for a whole people, um, that is something really quite, really very important for our sort of social and political life. And therefore he is, if you like, set apart at that moment and called to it, anointed for this role. So there is an element of that. You know, different people would understand that in slightly different ways. Some would see it in a more sort of sacramental sense, others in not so much of a sense. But I think there is in, in it. It's not just a kind of, you know, a bit of royal pageantry and, you know, some fancy robes and some sort of you know, special jewels and so on. There is a there's something that happens in this service that he, he is set apart to serve the people and to serve God. Um, I think the other thing I'd say about that is that um, and, and I think we noticed this when the when the Queen died, because one of the things that happened here in the UK, I think, is that was that I was saying earlier on, she was a she was a sort of symbol of permanence for us. She'd been around for 70 years You know, every Christmas day. She gave her, her kind of Christmas broadcast. She was there at all the sports events. She was there at the Trooping of the Colour. You know, she was always a presence for most of our lives. And suddenly she'd gone. And that was quite a sort of traumatic moment, I think, for, for, for people in the UK, that this symbol of permanence had had gone from us. Um, and there's a moment in the in the in the funeral where um, the coffin was taken to St. George's Windsor and um, the royal regalia, the crown and the scepter and the orb were taken off the common, co co coffin and placed on the on the altar of the church. Um, and it was a way of saying that, OK, she took this role for the last 70 years, um, but now she has died. That 
the power is returned to where it came from, which is it is God's power, until the day when a new king comes and takes it up for the next period of time. So it's a way of saying that that monarchs, I think, and the monarchy at its best, um, I, this is a way of putting it, that I think Queen Elizabeth was for us, She was. it reminded us that she was a symbol of permanence, but not the source of that permanence. The source of the permanence is the God who was and is and is to come, the God who is always there as the one who gives permanence and who sustains the world and sustains our lives forever. She was a kind of symbol of that permanence. And and therefore, to that extent, you know, the, the, the convention we have that monarchs don't get involved in the nitty gritty of politics. They leave that to the politicians. Actually, it's quite an important thing. Um, they don't do that. They are simply, I feel like, a symbol of that permanence that reminds us for us. So, so in some ways, there's a kind of subtle kind of balance there between that we are kind of investing the monarch as saying, you know, you are for us a symbol of the permanence of God. But at the same time, you know, the king or the, the queen does not kind of wield divine power as it like if you like if, if that makes some sense yeah so as as a pastor and bishop yourself i wonder if you can give us a window into uh what's going on with the church of england right now in terms of um the sort of pastoral or teaching challenges that you have around the coronation in a in a society that is that is more secular that doesn't fully understand these christian liturgies um for um bishops within the the Church of England, what are the the primary challenges in, in terms of teaching your people and the larger nation about what this coronation means? Are there particular um, myths or misconceptions that um, the Church of England is having to battle right now and now and in the coming weeks and months about what's actually happening there? Yeah, no, definitely. I think there are some, and we begin to touch on them already in our discussion. So, um I mean, partly that the whole thing is so new to us. Um, I mean, a royal wedding or a royal funeral, you kind of know what funerals and weddings are like. We've all been to them. Um, who's been to a coronation? Um, we haven't had one for 70 years. We didn't really know what it's about. So it'll, it'll come as a bit of a surprise to people, I think, the fact that it, and the fact that it is so religious. So there is a, you know, there would be a body of opinion that would think, okay, you know, we are a very different society now than we were 70 years ago. 70 years ago, much more clearly a Christian country, much greater for multi-faith presence in Britain today, much more secular in many ways. So why is the Archbishop of Canterbury the person who's crowning the, the, the monarch? It feels a bit kind of anachronistic. Now, as I, as I guess I've been trying to argue so far, I think there is a there is a coherent sort of political theology and understanding of rule that actually is 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 very rich and actually is a, a valuable thing for our society. Whether you're of faith or no faith, you're of in, you have an interest in good government, and I think this this gives a model of um, of good good government. So I guess one of the one of the challenges is, um, uh, you know, why is this a Christian ceremony in a multi faith society? Why is it a Christian ceremony in a sec, in a in an increasingly secular society? And we've begun to kind of respond to some of those. Um, I think there's a basic level of understanding of actually what's going on because a lot of it is quite complex. Um, you know. Um, there's a sort of complex drama that goes on within the service. I guess the journalists and the commentators will do their best to explain what's going on with it um, in the service. And, you know, people like the BBC are usually quite good at that kind of thing. Um, those are the challenges that we're trying yes. to face. Yes. So let, let's push into this pluralistic piece. How has, um, you know, in the past, these these more liturgical royal services, how have they they made a nod towards inclusion or hospitality towards other faiths within within England, as opposed to, I mean, we talked about the orb 
has a cross over it, right? That's not, <laughs> that's a pretty clear statement about what is, you know, who, who's in charge here. Um, can you, and I know that the, the liturgy hasn't fully been released yet, but can you give us a bit of a window into how is it that this remains a Christian service yet also sort of inclusive or hospitable or giving a nod to the fact that, um, it is a multi, multi-religious society now. How can, how can you do that within a worship service? Yeah. And as, as I was saying earlier on, each time the coronation happens, it, it shifts a little bit to reflect the nature of the society in which it takes place. And that's clearly something that needs to take place this time. And so I suppose it's, um, uh, I mean, it, it, it clearly will be a Christian service. We don't know the liturgy yet, but I doubt whether much will change on it. I mean, and, and I suppose the, the arguments for that are, uh, partly historical. This is kind of, you know, his, Christian faith is something that has deeply shaped and formed our national life, our constitution, our legal system, our kind of, you know, way of understanding government. It's always been there. Um, it's There's a kind of deep history in this, and you don't want to throw that away too quickly. Um, but within that, there is clearly a desire to to, to express and give voice to the multi-faith nature of Britain today. So one of the things that we do know already is that a number of um, our peers, that's members of the House of Lords who represent other faiths, will be involved in the service, uh, bringing forward some of the elements of the regalia. So there will be a sort of Muslim peer, a, um, a Jewish peer, a Hindu peer, you know, and people from other faiths representing, you know, playing a part within that service. Um, and that's a, a way of, you like, sort of representing that. And, you know, I, I know that I've, I've, I've often done services myself. I mean, as, as, as you may know, I was very involved in the aftermath of the Grenfell Tower fire that happened back in 2017, where 72 people died in, in London, uh, many, most of whom were Muslims. Um, we wanted to hold a national service of remembrance. Um, and actually, it was very interesting, my Muslim friends who were representing the family said, no, it, it needs to be in St. Paul's Cathedral because that's where the nation represents, that's where the nation remembers its dead and has its royal weddings. It does its big occasions. And so we had a service in St. Paul's, which of course had to be a Christian service because it's within a Christian church. But we found ways to make it possible for Muslims who came to that service to feel included within it. And um, I think the Church of England is quite good as it, as it can be at sort of bending over backwards to try to make as many people pos welcome as possible. And so those are some of the ways in which it's happening. Now, again, we don't know the full details of the liturgy. Um, there may be other ways in which that sense of hospitality is expressed, but we do know that one detail that, um, that a number of members of the House of Lords representing other faiths will be part of the service in, in, in playing a significant role within it. I, I wanted to ask specifically about the Church of England, because as you're alluding to, this is not just a Christian service or coronation. It's very much an Anglican a coronation, at least to some degree, that it represents. This is about the Church of England, the National Church, and there's a long history and tradition there. But it's worth noting that, um, and the numbers are really remarkable, so much so that I sometimes wonder if they're true. But according to various recent polls, um, only 2% of young adults under 24 identify as members of the Church of England, 2%. Um, and out of those 2% that identify an estimated only one in five attend Church of England services at least once a month. So you can just do the math there, 20% of 2%, you know, we're getting into yeah. 
small numbers, especially with the young generation. Now, as they get older, there's a good chance that some of them might return to religious identification or practice. But, you know, it's not looking very promising in that regard. And obviously, there's been a lot of hand-wringing, you know, from British commentators about why this is the case. But I bring that up because, you know, there is, there is a tension here that you do want to, as you said, bend over backwards to accommodate those of other faiths to make them feel like they belong. At the same time, there is a risk of diluting the faith um, or the orthodoxy, if you will, that less people find it compelling. It becomes so diluted that British citizens say, well, I might as well just be secular if these are the choices. And this is one thing we've talked about in the podcast quite a bit. Matthew and I is how stricter, more orthodox forms of religion are actually the ones that are gaining ground because people in their modern predicament are looking for structure and meaning. And if you dilute faith too much, you lose that structure and meaning. And apparently... A lot of people want more of that. So I'm curious how you would maybe contend with, you know, some of those concerns or challenges. I, I think that's a really important point, Shadi. I think um, I think you're absolutely right. I think sometimes, you know, there are tendencies within the Church of England to kind of say, you know, because the numbers aren't looking great, let's make it as believable as possible um, and sort of dilute it. And, and actually that becomes, why bother? Um, you know, if, if all you're offering is a, vaguely religious tinged version of what everyone thinks anyway then what, what's the point in being christian uh, or muslim or any other faith and so actually it's much better if, if if faiths are kind of authentically themselves and in some ways i i think one of my hopes for this service is that um it's always it is such a rich um and deeply christian service that it may open people's eyes to some of that um that sort of authentic nature of, of Christian faith and, and its um, its coherence sort of intellectually, spiritually, politically, uh, and so on as well. I, mean, I think one of the interesting things we found, you know, when the, when the Queen died was for that week, um, to be honest, because it happened so quickly, there wasn't really time to ask all these questions about secularism and multi-faith Britain and so on. We were straight into mourning the death of the Queen. And, and yet, because there was a kind of well-tried uh, and well-rehearsed process where almost everything that happened in that week or so happened in the context of some liturgical some worship service um whether it was the the lying in state or whether it was the um the, you know the processions you know for, and, and and whether it was the actual funeral itself it was all in the context of prayer and worship and there was a moment there was a sense in which you suddenly saw if you like the the deep christian religious um kind of infrastructure of our national life and our constitution suddenly laid bare. Um, and it was almost as if the church kind of held the grief of the nation for that week or 10 days or so. Now, of course, you know, once it passes, it goes back to normal and you know, the normal sort of secular discourse takes takes over. But if you like, you suddenly you, you saw the bare bones of who we are as a nation. And in some ways, I think this is, a, this is another occasion where we'll touch a little bit on those those deep Christian structures of our sort of national life and the things we take for granted within our national life, these ideas of, you know, rulers about service. And I mean, after all, you know, we are, are the head of our government is called the prime minister, which you could translate as the first servant, because that's what it is. Now, mm. That is, again, mm. a kind of remarkable thing that we call, you know, we call him the, the first servant. He's the first servant of the people. Um, 
that, that I would say is a, is a deeply religious, deeply Christian, Jewish kind of understanding of, 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 of leadership. And, you know, maybe we find it within Islam as well. And, um, and you don't find it within secular dictatorships. Um, and so, um, I guess, you know, I, I, I think I'd, I'd want to say, I think you're absolutely right. We, we don't want to dilute the nature of Christian faith, um, and the value it is. And it's a kind of source of wisdom that we've, you know, we have 2000 years of reflection on what it means to live together on who God is, on who human beings are, how societies work. And maybe as a culture, we've kind of jettisoned that wisdom too quickly. Um, and this may be an opportunity to refine that. I mean, just back onto the, the, the orthodoxy piece, one of the things that Shadi and I talk about is uh, the strangeness of faith in a secular society hmm. um, and the ways in which public faith that is, that is deeply orthodox uh, comes across as odd or ill-fitting or awkward. And one of the things that I've reflected on is the, the presence of the hijab or the headscarf in public spaces um, that sort of very publicly sticks out and um, I've argued that it's actually a gift to secular society in that it invites us to reflect upon um, our own thinking about um, about gender and sexuality and clothing and expression and what are the convictions that we have um, that we are willing to live out publicly. Um, and it also invites us to reflect on the fact uh, that we are very divided as a human people and that we have different understandings of um, human flourishing and the common good. And, and it invites us to ask how we're going to live together. And it seems to me as we roll through the coronation service, there are some really strange things that are going to happen during this coronation service. Some, some things that, um, you know, secular viewers are going to trip up over and, um, are going to invite questions, hopefully, hopefully not just condemnations of this is terrible, um, but actually what is this weird thing with oil that's going on? Um, and it seems to me that, that that sort of orthodoxy can invite sort of haunting questions about, uh, the nature of power and transition. And, um, and so maybe one way of asking this question is, is there something particularly odd? that's going to happen in this coronation that you hope that you pray that the British people will reflect on, um, some, something that will trip them up when they're watching this service that you hope that they would at least pause and, and, and reflect on. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think you're right. I think this is, this is one of the really odd bits of Christian worship that people will experience because <laughs> it is, it is, it'll be something un unlike anything else. I was reflecting how, when um when the queen died a little bit before we'd had the um the queen silver the the was it diamond jubilee you know um 70 years since she she became queen and we had an, a, a usual secular celebration basically it was paul mccartney and it was elton john and it was you know um concerts in front of the the, the, the queen and so on and and it was a our usual sort of secular form of of um of celebration and it struck me you know that when the funeral happened and you had those sort of ancient words of the psalms uh, you had this liturgy that had a great depth to it that that there was so much more depth to that than there was to this sort of rather sort of shallow celebration there'd been just a few months before and it struck me and if we tried to had paul mccartney and elton john presiding over the funeral that kind of wouldn't have worked quite so well um 
And so the kind of strangeness, the oddness of it is right. So, I, And I think you're right, Matthew. I think that moment of the, of the, of the anointing is going to be the, the oddest bit. Um, and uh, again, you, we won't actually see it because it'll be behind a curtain. But even that sort of idea that there's something so sacred that not even the television cameras in our intense scrutiny of modern life, there's something that's so sacred that we're not even allowed to see it, that I think will make a point. Um, uh, but this realisation that under that, canopy there was this, this anointing where you know the, the archbishop would be pouring oil upon the, the 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 king's head and mouth and breast and hands again that's a very odd thing and i my hope is that 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 will make people think oh, okay what what is going on there if this is a sign of the consecration to to a particular role of serving other people what is that about what is that and tell you if this is a sign of the gift of the holy spirit that the king needs a wisdom beyond his own it'll be a sign that we, we we too need wisdom beyond our own we cannot sort of navigate life just under under our own resources so that is i think one of those strange moments that i kind of do hope in a way that will sort of just jar a bit, a bit in a helpful way yeah so here, here's something that's been going on in my my head and heart listening to you and and thinking about this is is actually the presidency of Donald Trump <laughs> um, and the way that he held that office, the way that he treated that office um, with a sort of uh, casual um, and 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 disrespectful posture um, and of course, there there are many sort of tragedies of of uh, the Trump presidency, um, but one of them has it really uncovered the ways in which, you know, as Americans, you know, we like to distinguish ourselves from the British and that we don't have a monarchy and yet, um, and we don't have an established religion. And yet there are many ways in which we look to our presidents to be the spiritual leader of the nation or the moral leader of the nation, to have a sort of level of humility and reverence. And, you know, our inauguration services here in the United States have a have a spiritual and a sort of reverent feel to them historically and it seems to me that the way that Donald Trump treated the presidency um yeah I, I just can't stop thinking about that as I listen to you talk about uh humility the first servant and understanding that I am not God uh Queen Elizabeth and the way she, that she saw herself as um, not belonging to herself, uh, but belonging to the nation. And I just, I don't know, Shadi, if you have any sort of reflections on, on, on sort of the reverence of the American presidency. Um, and it, it just seems to me that, that Donald Trump sort of laid bare the sorts of things that we, we hope for in the presidency. And, uh, I don't know, as, as Americans, we want to have this clear distinction between faith and politics, but, um, I just I just can't stop thinking about it. So I I don't know, Shadi. Do you have any any thoughts about that? Yeah, and it, it it is worth noting that I mean Donald Trump was I was about to say is God forbid was uh, the most secular president as far as we know in 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 American history in a sense of someone who was very much not outwardly obviously or theologically uh, Christian. And, you know, up until Donald Trump, there was at least usually a pretense for even those who weren't 
uh, or didn't seem particularly faithful in their own private lives. Um, and I think this question of morality and how moral should the president be as a kind of guide for the country. I remember growing up in the 90s, that kind of discourse was much more prevalent with uh, President Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky affair, this idea that, oh my God, I mean, children look up to the president of the United States. I don't think we hear that kind of rhetoric as much anymore, obviously, in light of uh, more recent developments. I think many Americans have moved away from that idea of our head of state being a sort of spiritual or moral guide. And in fact, the idea can sometimes seem seem absurd. Um, so in that sense, I think the idea of someone who is spiritually endowed being the head of state is a significant difference between uh, the U.S. and Britain. And maybe on that note, I'll just ask uh, Bishop Graham, I mean, you wrote a really great piece recently um, where you kind of preview the coronation. We'll include a link to that um, in the show notes. Um, And one of the points you make is that Queen Elizabeth was very public about one thing in particular. She avoided, to her credit, getting into, as you say, the nitty-gritty of politics. But the one thing that she did not hide or keep from uh, public view was her commitment to the church and her faith that was important to her. And you say that King Charles has also shown signs of this sort of faith and recognition of the importance of faith. But I noted in your article that there was a sense that we're not entirely sure. There are some question marks when it comes to how King Charles himself sees his role and this this kind of the spiritual endowment uh, of the of the monarchy. And I mean, I, I you know, I, you know, there there has been, I suppose, there is a, a long running conspiracy theory that's like half humorous about King Charles actually being a closet Muslim. But I mean, <laughs> so, that sort of thing is obviously, yeah. um, you know, silly and can be amusing. But I think there is a bigger concern that 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 that, that reflects, which is that King Charles himself doesn't have the same perhaps commitment or focus on the spiritual or religious aspects of the role, at least not in the same way as Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, it's interesting, I think. Um, I mean, I think we saw over the lifetime of Queen Elizabeth a kind of growth in that sense. I mean, certainly towards the end of her life, she became much more open and, and uh, vocal about her own personal Christian faith. Her Christmas broadcasts were much more... Um, openly Christian than they had been in the past. I think she maybe, you know, we all go through our different spiritual journeys. We mature over time. We become more confident or whatever in in our faith. And I think you could see that happening um, with her. I guess King Charles will have his own spiritual journey. I mean, some of the things he's said since becoming king has, have been, you know, um, have indicated how important faith is for him, how important his role as Supreme Governor of the Church of England is for him. And he takes that very seriously. I also think there's something about this service that must have a powerful impact upon someone. Um, I think it did on Queen Elizabeth, but, it, you know, going through that service, we've talked about it already, you know, being anointed in that sort of way, that can't help but have a powerful impact on a person to make them realize there's something something significant going on here. You're not just being given a job that you do for a few years and lay it down again. So I suspect that may be the case. And I think um, so. I mean, you know, we don't know, we can't see into each other's hearts, thank goodness. 
Um, we can't really speculate too much upon other people's faith. But from what we can tell, I think it is something that he takes seriously and, and he has his own spiritual journey. I think it's something that he would want to do. I mean, just going back a couple of comments quickly on what we are talking about just before as well, which is related to this. Um, um, it's just, I think one of the, I'll be back to your, your comments about um, Donald Trump and the presidency there and other rulers we've had recently. I, I guess one of the, the great critics of Christianity, the one, probably the critic who understood Christianity best, I think, was Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, and uh, you know, his you know, kind of alternative was a sort of sense that the world needs great men, the ubermensch. Um, and I think Trump, in a way, kind of saw himself in that, you know, the 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 general populace need great people like me to lead them and to come in and wield power. We've seen that in other contexts that we've had one or two prime ministers, I think ourselves, who've seen themselves in that in that kind of way. And it's almost as if that's the mirror image of this Christian um, kind of theology of power that we will see portrayed within the um, within the, uh, the coronation. You know, a ruler who feels it's there sort of divine calling to exercise power and wield power and impose their will upon uh, upon the people. And I think there's something about, you know, once you take away that sense of a sacred canopy, that sense of a broader authority, uh, the authority that we are accountable to, to to a God who we didn't make up and who made us instead, um, then all you you do get down just to naked power. You know, if, it, if there is no power beyond our own human power, then it's whoever can wrest it from... And that's what you got within the Roman emperors. You know, it was the Roman emperor had the power of life and death over the people until someone came along who was more powerful and exercised a coup and exercised their power. The same with Chinese emperors as well. You know, I remember being in the Forbidden City in in, in Beijing and realizing how much power Chinese emperors had over their people. They could literally decide whether to execute people, take people their problem, take their property away because they were not accountable to anybody else or to any god beyond their own sort of um, sense. So. I think there's something really quite significant going on here. And we've got two very different models of rule and authority being offered here, which is why I, I kind of quite like the coronation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it, I think it is uh, properly, properly understood an invitation to all of us, whatever our faith is, to reflect upon how we understand power and what is it for, how should it be used. And it is quite fascinating how in so many different cultures and religions around the world, the transfer of power um, is not simply a, a technocratic thing, um, but it is a very spiritual thing. It's a, it's a liturgical thing. And uh, it is sort of a heightened spiritual moment, whatever power is transferred. And it, it is an invitation to all of us, whatever our faith is to reflect upon, you know, what will you use this power for? Um, and who is it due? And, um, how can it be taken away as well? And how, and that sort of the contingency of it all. And I think once again, about, you know, Queen Elizabeth's, uh, funeral that, um, right. She, she served it for a time. Um, and then it was gone again and it's transferred on and it lives on beyond her. And even Queen Elizabeth, one of the most famous people in the world, you know, understood herself to be a, a contingent mortal um, holding that for a time and having to hold it loosely. That's right. And, and also that um, that power belongs, because of course, you know, in, in modern democracies, we tend to think of, you know, even within our own democracy in the UK, that, you know, effectively the government is led by the prime minister and the, the power, the, the party that wins the election um, and so on. So I guess, you know, the, the, the third alternative, you know, you've got the Nietzschean idea of the, the ubermensch, you've got this Christian understanding of power. The sort of third option is the kind of democratic ideal where, 
power is wielded by the people, power is vested in the people, and therefore rulers rule on behalf of the people, they are accountable to the people, um, on the will of the people. And I guess the, 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 the question I have about, about that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fully in favour of democracy, don't get me wrong, I think it's great. Well, as Winston Churchill said, it's the best system of government apart from all the other ones that, well, the, no, the worst system of government apart from all the other ones that have been tried. Um, uh, and I suppose the point of that is that, that even the will of the people can get it wrong. Um, I mean, Adolf Hitler was elected into power initially. Um, now, eventually, he kind of wielded power in ways that we, we know about. But the will of the people doesn't always get it right, and so therefore, this idea that there is a there is a an authority even beyond the will of the people, um, this symbol of this this sign of permanence, the giver of permanence, the giver of ultimate rule, who is who is God Himself, I think, gives us a a, a kind of broader perspective that even holds the will of the people in a sense of tension. Even that's not the very last word, because sometimes the will of the people can get it wrong. Um, and I think that's quite an important thing to hold within our, even within our kind of democratic theologies and the importance of democracy within our political life and theology. I, I know we're running out of time, but I can't resist just bringing up a potential counterpoint to, to what you just mentioned, uh, Bishop Graham, if, you, if you'll indulge me. And not to open a can of worms, but I, I just do want to present it as an alternative view that some British uh, Republicans have. Uh, I was just reading this, uh, rereading a piece recently by Rory Scothorne in The New Statesman, where he's very critical of the monarchy, interestingly, for some of the same reasons that you mentioned, that it actually allows the British state to evade accountability and responsibility by putting itself above the will of the people. I'll just quote something um, brief here that he writes in that piece. Also, we'll include that in the show notes. He says, the split between head of state and head of government in the British constitution does not allow the monarch to function as a fair, impartial referee. On the contrary, it, it allows the state to float away from democratic accountability altogether. And I think that point, the, the broader point here is, is that lowering the ceiling of politics and restricting and constraining British citizens. And that's always a risk, I think, when we appeal to a higher power, we essentially say to our fellow citizens, oh, what you think, you're going to have to, you know, hold that to yourself. You're just a mere mortal. There is a greater authority and that supersedes you. And there is a risk there, I think of an authoritarian temptation, obviously not in the case of Britain, but I think that there is a kind of thinking that I think some people are wary of. Yeah, no, I can absolutely see that. And and, and I guess a, a perversion of that, um, the, the kind of monarchy ideal was the idea of the divine right of kings, which was briefly popular amongst the Stuart monarchs many years ago in, in, in Britain. Um, but I guess ever since the late 17th century and the, what we call the Glorious Revolution, the time when... Um, you know, the, the monarchy was in some ways transferred. You know, William of Orange, this Protestant king, was brought in uh, as opposed to the Catholic Stuart king. And uh, Stuart, um, King James, from, from that moment onwards, we've had not so much a kind of divine right of kings, the kings as as being kind of ruling by divine right and therefore that kind of authoritarian rule, but a, a much more kind of covenantal understanding that power is dispersed, a kind of covenant between the king, the people and God where the people are involved in that. And that, I think, is a is always a hedge against that sort of drift towards an authoritarian type of type of rule. And the use of the idea of monarchy as being 
uh, a way of, if you like, an appealing to a higher power that, that is a sort of subtle way of imposing your own will upon other people. Um, and um, so I, I think those, those, those are some of the observations I've had on that. I, you know, he's put his finger on a, on a real sort of danger of, of, of monarchy. And we all know how monarchs, monarchy can be used in very quite unhelpful and very authoritarian ways. But um, I think at its best, it, it is something which offers us a, uh, a kind of healthy structure for political life and one that enables us to kind of function as well as, as we might do within our sort of democratic systems. Yeah. Bishop Graham, thank you so much for your time today. It has been wonderful for me, um, particularly just, just theologically, I'm just reflecting on, um, the responsibility that each and each and every one of us bears when it comes to taking on power, uh, in our own lives as a, as a good reformed Christian, uh, the priesthood of all believers that, uh, in baptism, each one of us is, is invested with a with a power with a responsibility this understanding in the christian faith that we are given crowns uh in the new heavens and the new earth and so each one of us you know whether we are uh, leading a business or a classroom a hospital um or a family um we have power and that is a a sacred um and 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 heavy crown to bear um, and it is not for us, but it is for the, the glory of our God and the flourishing of those that we serve. And um, my hope and prayer for uh, Christians is that this coronation would be a time to reflect upon that. Um, and for those of other faiths or no faiths to reflect as well upon the ways that they would like to um, interact with power in their own lives. And um the sacred nature of that as well. So thank you so much, Bishop Graham, for joining us. Amen to that. Uh, thank you, uh, Bishop Graham. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening to Zealots at the Gate. If you liked what you heard in this episode, um, please check out our other episodes and also check out our host, Comment Magazine, at comment.org. And again, we do want to hear from you, um, especially if you have thoughts on the coronation and its aftermath uh, in the coming weeks. You can find us on Twitter at Shadi Hamid, that's me, and at Matthew Kamink, note the Dutch spelling. Uh, you can also use the hashtag ZealotsPod. You can also feel free to send us an email at zealots at comment.org. Uh, we, we would... Um, welcome a sincere exchange and invite you to share your thoughts yeah and our thanks as well to fuller seminary's mao institute of faith and public life for sponsoring this event i actually have my fuller seminary mug here today and in honor of our guest i've been drinking english breakfast tea uh, bishop graham thank you again sir very good thank you so much it's been great to have the conversation really enjoyed um, being with you today yeah likewise it's been very nice to meet you yeah Zealots at the Gate is hosted by Comet Magazines, produced by Ali Crummy, audience strategy by the wonderful Matt Crummy, and editorial direction by Miss Ann Snyder. Until next time, my name is Matthew Kamink. And I'm Shadi Hamid. Thanks for joining us. Bye.